0: I want to clarify that hacks don't mean that it's always easy. Like the way to hack a marathon isn't drink some magical beverage and like massage your calves and jump in a cold plunge. The way to hack a marathon might be there is a training regimen that will get you to a marathon, you know, ready st- state much faster than just like running. Is there a more efficient way to do almost anything? Yes. Yes. Does that more efficient way often result in being able to do it in a minute? No, like not everything is easy and, and many things require hard work. But I do think my version of hacking things is just finding that most efficient way to get what you want. And, and ideally for the
1: lowest price. And I don't know, generally, I can't think of a lot of things that that isn't true about. Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. I'm really excited about the episode I just did with my friend, Chris Hutchins, who is somebody that has mastered the ability to hack things he has a podcast that he does full-time and really a media business called all the hacks we got connected through podcasting and he understands the podcast business about it well as anybody but we have a really cool discussion about how credit cards work and how he has garnered over 12 million points and basically travels for free and stays at places for free and gets discounts on things and really just go through the nuance of how almost anybody can do it if you're just aware of it. We talk about how he has hacked his business and ways to save money and time in business. This is an entrepreneur podcast, so I learned a lot there. And then we talked a little bit about the business of podcasting. This is still in its infancy, and there's probably nobody in the world I know that knows the actual business of podcasting better than he does. So it was just a great episode, I learned a lot. I think anybody that listens to this episode, by the end will be saving thousands of dollars on their next trip, and so give it a listen. Thank you so much for continuing to join me and enjoy this show. I'm really impressed by our team at Four Capital and the newsletter that we've created that we send out quarterly. Talks all about our real estate firm, it talks about our forward-thinking and tech-focused culture, and this is really what we believe sets us apart from most real estate companies. We offer exclusive content from Fort Capital's economic strategist, information on the latest acquisitions and dispositions, our top performing podcast episodes, most recent content pieces. You can sign up for our newsletter at FortCapitalLP.com. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Chris and I have gotten to know each other over the last few months. We've become buddies and and he has a really interesting story and, and what he does is super interesting. So... I just wanted to kind of start with a little bit of background on kind of what you're doing today and then I want to digress to how what happened early in your life that kind of led you to what I would call kind of a hacker life. You've learned how to kind of hack life. Thank you. Yeah, I, I life hacker is part of the moniker I guess these days. So
0: today I run full-time only thing I do is focus on, you know, it's funny, it's grown past a podcast, but I don't know what to call it. Media company sounds so ridiculous, but it's called All the Hacks. We have a podcast, we have a newsletter, we have a membership, and it's really a community for helping people upgrade their life, their money, their travel, and ideally do it while spending less and saving more. And this isn't the place of like how do you optimize your order at Starbucks to save 20 cents. It's more like we, it's evolved to be a lot bigger questions like how do you prioritize your health but maybe not need to hire a concierge doctor? How do you get, you know, access to amazing luxury vacations without having to spend, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on ridiculous things? I play the points game pretty hard, so that solves a lot of the travel savings and and allows me to fly in business class without paying for it, but that's really the spectrum of things. We've covered meditation, negotiation, travel, money, investing, alternative assets, all kinds of stuff.
1: Okay. So to understand why you're interested in it today, I think it would be important to do just a look back. Is there anything that you can like remember in life, whether you were young, as a kid, as a teenager, that kind of teed you up for really this has become kind of your life mission. Like you've put a ton of resources and energy and some of the companies you've started, we'll talk about were kind of involved in this space. Like what happened that made this the thing? There are two moments in my
0: kind of early-ish childhood that come to mind. Neither of which I think, like neither of which are necessarily the source, but I'll share share two stories. One was, you know, I think my parents, I, I didn't grow up you know, underprivileged, you know, kind of like standard suburban, maybe upper middle class family. But they did not just give me unlimited money. So, you know, I went to boarding school and there were a lot of kids whose parents just gave them unlimited money. And that wasn't me. And so I net but I guess maybe because I lived in a community where I had lots of people that were in that situation, I was like, you know, I kind of want to keep up with the Joneses, but you know, I was a kid. I couldn't take out credit card. You know, like people keep up with the Joneses in terrible ways once they're adults because they just get credit cards and they overspend and they bring on all this debt. When you're in elementary or high school, like you that's not an option. And so I just I, like I just kind of got creative. So I I remember two things. One, I really wanted to go to some concerts, but I didn't have the money to buy the tickets, and so I created a magazine. And back in the day, depending on how old people here are, you know, you would go to the grocery store and you would see these like printed on paper, folded in half, kind of like indie zine kind of magazines. There weren't stats on distribution back then. You know, there wasn't a website to go look at. So I made this magazine and I took a picture of it and I like emailed, you know, some concert venue or someone's like, oh, I've got this magazine about music and it was, but it didn't have any distribution. But I took the time to make sure that it was a real magazine with real content. And then they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll give you like a press pass so you can come to the concert. And these were not like major, major concerts, but, you know, they were concerts nonetheless. They were bands I wanted to see. That was one. And then the other was at boarding school, we after school, even though the school provided good food, there's just something about when you go to school, you always have to hate the food at school. That's just like a rite of passages. I, you know, school food is the worst. So the thing at my boarding school was everyone after study hall, which was like what we did at night, and would order pizza and have it delivered to campus, and you'd all eat pizza at like nine thirty p.m. Well, I couldn't afford to order pizza every night? And you know, you can't just order a slice of pizza. So I realized that I was never going to be able to order pizza. And then one night I was like, well, what if I just order a pizza and then I just sell people slices? And the margin on it was such that I could order a pizza, sell six of the slices, eat two of them, and make a, li- make a couple bucks. Yeah. So every night, it was like, <laughs> no one was ordering pizza because I just like set up shop to sell pizza slices at school. So I was the pizza store effectively. And now all these people weren't wasting food, which I guess is good. And so I just found a way. I, like, the goal is not to hack your way to, to save the money. It's to hack your way to get the thing you want without having to spend the money. And so at the end of the day, I still went to the concert. I still ate the pizza. I just didn't have to pay for it. So that's kind of the earliest two examples I have. I'm sure there are others, but I guess
1: those are the ones that stick out. Is it fair to say through your view of the world, almost everything is hackable?
0: Yeah, I want to I clarify that hacks don't mean that it's always easy. Like the way to hack a marathon isn't like, drink some magical beverage and like, you know, massage your calves and jump in a cold plunge. Like the way to hack a marathon might be, there is a training regimen that will get you to a marathon, you know, ready state much faster than just like running. And so is there a more efficient way to do almost anything? Yes. Does that more efficient way often result in like being able to do it in a minute. No, like it not everything is easy and and many things require hard work. But I do think my version of hacking things is just finding that most efficient way to get what you want and and ideally for the lowest price and I don't know generally I can't think of a lot of things that that isn't true about.
1: Okay, so the next question and maybe this is just like a peek inside your how your brain works. How do you approach situations to figure out where the hack might be? And obviously like a marathon is different than getting points for an airline, or maybe it's not, but you seem to have this probably filter on life where like everything you look at now is probably like, okay, what's the quickest way from A to B expending the least amount of energy and spending the least resources to maximize benefit? Like, how does your brain, I don't know. I'm kind of asking you, like, how does your... How does your mind work as you approach things that could be hackable? Yes, it's a good
0: question. I was talking with this I don't even know what to call, it, like a business coach who was helping me think through you know, like what are my principles that would kind of maybe be the the framework for a book if I if I wrote a book. And there were two things we realized. So one of them was like what are these principles that I adhere to that maybe allow me to optimize different things in a way that most people don't. So, I came came up with a few. I, I won't I don't have all the answers because this is not it's not like I have a book ready to go and you know here I am selling No, No, it's, it's still still work in progress. I think the the first one that I've adhered to basically my whole life is that conventional wisdom just sucks. And so I always you know i'm I'm like the most annoying friend when it comes to like someone's like, oh, you know I'm thinking about doing X and what do you think and i'm like well why sounds a lot better like why why not why why isn't why the greatest thing maybe you should be considering why and then i finally convinced them and they're like okay fine i think why is good i'm like are you sure x <laughs> sounded pretty good like i just have this default assumption that what the average person is thinking might be wrong which can be super annoying my teachers absolutely hated me in school because i would question everything and i didn't just assume oh well, the teacher said it it must be the right thing and so that's one big principle is just don't assume that because someone says something, even if they might, you know, be someone you think knows a lot, maybe the circumstances are different. You know, maybe maybe that thing was right, you know, during a different generation. And now it's not right. You know, is real estate the only way to build wealth? No, there are lots of ways to build wealth. But there are certain parents who will tell their children, the only way you can build wealth is real estate. Many people have built a lot of wealth through real estate. You know that more than I do. <laughs> You've done it. But, but that's not the only way, despite what some people might say. So that was one thing. And then I think it's important as important to question all of these things you hear from other people as to just question yourself about what you're actually trying to get out of a situation, because sometimes you might think, you know, what I'm really trying to optimize is how to spend time with my kids. And you go down this rabbit hole of, oh, if I want to spend more time with my kids, I need to retire early. And if I need to retire early, I need to save a lot of money. So if I need to save a lot of money. I need to work really hard for the next 10 years so that I can put as much money in the bank as possible so I can retire early and just be totally free to spend time with my kids. And you go through this, you're like, wait wait, wait a second. What if I actually just started working four days a week and I didn't plan any early retirement? Maybe I even plan to work five years later than I thought, but now I have a day a week that I can spend with my kids and I'm gonna spend it with them when they're younger. And so you kind of really have to ask yourself, what I call the five whys. And I don't call them that because I coined the term. It was something that's very common in product management where I spent a lot of my career, which is just you ask a customer, you know, what what do you want this thing to do? And they say, Oh, I want it to do this. And you say, Why? And they say, Oh, because it'll be more convenient. Why would it be more convenient? Oh, it'd be more convenient because it would make, you know, my life. Why would it make your life easier? You just go down this path. And then finally you get at the actual thing. And once you figure out the actual thing, maybe now you can optimize for that and not what you originally thought. So those are a couple of them. I think, you know, anytime I'm trying to solve something, I just try to break down how the machine works. That's probably the a third one I'll mention. And I'm not going to just kind of go through this entire idea of a book proposal. But, you know, the one that stuck with this woman I was working with, and she's like, I just keep coming back to it, is you told me that when you want to buy a car, when you first wanted to buy a car, your first instinct, my first instinct was like, how does a dealership make money? And she's like, when I wanted to buy a car, I thought I'm going to go to the dealership and buy a car. And you thought, how does the dealer make money? Because I think if you understand how the whole operation works, whatever it is, you can start to figure out where the points of leverage are that you can, you know, kind of use to find the most optimal outcome. So if you want to know how to get the best deal on a used car, or a new car, you know, find out where, where, how is this person incented? How are, how are, you know, salespeople at a dealership? How do they make money? Are there times of a year where that matters more or less? Is it at the end of the month, they're just trying to get a deal done because they hit a bonus that's based on cars sold, not even entirely based at all on what they sell this car for? Like, I I don't actually know if I could tell you that answer because the last car I bought was a Tesla and you just buy it online and you don't get to negotiate anything. But that is how I think of approaching things is like understand everything about how it works and go as deep as it is important. So... I was going to transition my entire career to be a full time podcaster, so I went as deep as possible on podcasting. Let me underturn every nook, every stone, and find everything I can to truly understand the machine that is podcasting because it's going to be my career. If I'm trying to decide where to get a haircut, I, I you know, like if I'm trying to find a barber in a city that I'm not going to come back to for a long time because I realized I forgot to get my haircut before I go from ho- go home leave home. I'm not going to spend three weeks trying to optimize. How, how do
1: barbers make money? How do I get them? You know, I'm just going to get a haircut. We're going to talk about the business podcast. And there's two things you said that that resonate. One is in the real estate industry, there's kind of a joke. Some people say, if you stay in the business long enough, you end up getting into the hotel industry. And that what they say is, is like owning a good hotel is like owning a cash register that never stops. But to your point is like, When I hear that, I go, oh, there's a ton of margin in this for good hotels. And as we know, when you travel and you can hack travel, it's maybe one of the most widely known hackable things. And people are flying for free or there's a room for 2000, they're staying for 200 or they're getting free breakfast. There's so many ways that hotels can incentivize you. And that always makes me think, yeah, there's people that are making a lot of money doing this. And then the second thing you said, my buddy's a car dealer. I can't remember exactly what he said, but there's basically like three weeks of the year that are like the best three weeks of the year to buy a car for exactly what you said. It's like, you know, they've already sold their inventory, you know, salespeople have already hit their quotas, so they're willing to cut price. Like there's these three windows of the year, three weeks of the year that every year are the best three weeks. I can't remember what they are, but it's kind of what you said, starting with how do you make money and working yourself backwards.
0: And, And I bet most people's instinct is, you know what, if I want to get the best deal on a car, I need to learn how to negotiate the price. It's like, no, you actually just need to pick the right week. Like the, the answer might not be what you thought. And you might ask a friend, you know, and, and I'm sure it's like, oh, how do you negotiate a car? And, and every single one of your friends like, I know how to negotiate a car. It's like, everybody knows how to negotiate a car. Everybody's got a guy that sells a ring. Like there's just like a few things that everyone has someone has an opinion on. But sometimes that con- conventional wisdom is just totally wrong. And like the ring thing, everyone I know, has a person that is like I've got a guy if you're looking to buy a ring. It, it, I don't know why it just seems like the most common thing that every every person has a person. And one of my listeners sent in an email and was like you know the way you buy a ring nowadays is and, and I did a similar thing. You find the diamond online. You you like all the diamonds are available to everyone. And when you go to a a jeweler and you're trying to buy a ring, you're like I want a 1.45 carat, you know, XYZ diamond cut this a lot, they don't have like a a bajillion diamonds on hand. They just buy, there's a directory and they can go get them sent to them. And then they have a period of time where they can buy them or send them back. And because they're so small, shipping's pretty cheap. They do insure it all. And so you could just go find the diamond you want and negotiate and say, hey, I I want you to make this ring. Let's negotiate a fair rate for you to do it based on the fact that I know this, this diamond costs this much. And the other hack there is everybody seems to, there's a high demand for 1.5 carat diamonds, one carat diamonds, two carat diamonds, because a lot of the stores, Tiffany's and all these like kind of more mass market jewelers, they don't do a lot of custom stuff. So when they sell two carat rings, you know, they want it to be like 1.99 to 2.01 or something. So if you're like, I'm going to get you a 1.36 carat ring. Like, that is a very uncommon thing. There's much less demand. And if you know how supply and demand works, you can get a better deal. So, and and maybe you don't need to be sold on all these kind of scams where it's like, oh, the the hearts of fire. If you look in, this ring is cut in a way that it has these cool image. You know, a lot of that doesn't matter. No one's carrying a loop around to look at the ring on a, a daily basis. So I don't know. It seems like you might have thought, again, negotiating was the answer, but it's not. But all of your friends are going to tell you, oh, the answer is go to my guy. My guy's great. He'll give you a great deal. And that's just, I've heard that story a million times. And the answer is there's probably five better ways to get a ring. The only other one I used, which I think is a good negotiation tactic anytime, is we agreed on the ring, we agreed on a lot of things. We kind of knew what we were doing. And I went to the jeweler with a backpack filled with cash. And I, you know, I already knew that if you offer to pay with a credit card, the jewelers are like, well, I got to charge you a fee. And so I went in there. I was like, this is the price I want. I'm ready to do this. And the guy's like, ah, you know, I can't do that price. I can do this higher price. And I literally put all of the green, you know, <laughs> USD currency on the table. And I was like, if you want this for this price, I will do it right now. Here is the cash. And he was like, I don't think I can do it. And I started putting the dollars back in the, I was like, okay, well, like we, you know, we can talk later. And he was like, okay, 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 okay fine. Like people... It's so much harder to say no to a pile of money. So if you're negotiating something big, it certainly has advantages. And I have a friend who did the same thing with a domain. He really wanted a domain. So he flew out, met the guy in person with a briefcase with like, you know, 50 grand or whatever the domain cost, And he was like, I- I'm not messing around. This is money. It's not that everyone else that made him an offer wasn't willing to wire 50 grand. It's just that when you see it in a briefcase, you're like, okay, I'll do this. Like, that's real. I- I- like I could go do anything with that. So... I don't know. Those are a couple of negotiation things, but maybe that gives it more color.
1: When we first started buying real estate and we would like a property where you have to kind of buy it quick and keep everybody quiet so that they don't really know what's going on. The way we would do it most often is we would tell people, look, we've already run title. There's $50,000 in escrow at the title company. If you sign the contract today, you can go straight to the title company and they'll release $50,000 to you for signing. And if we don't close, you get to keep the 50000 but you got to sign the contract that moved people more than just about any tactic ever was cash today in your pocket. All right, let's talk about credit cards. We're going to talk about a few different topics, but I've got like three or four, three or four topics or credit cards topics. I've, and I have three or four credit cards, <laughs> uh, but I have three or four topics, but this is one that's like really fun. So you have amassed over 12 million points over your life. But I just kind of want to start by like, how do credit card points really work? And like, what is actually, ha- what's the business of credit card points? Yeah. So there's some really interesting things going on here. And
0: I, I don't know what the number in my life is. I think I'm sitting on about 12 and a half million now. So maybe I've amassed 20, who knows? But so the interesting thing is there's just kind of two two parts here that are important. One is how do credit card you know rewards work, which is, Anyone that runs a business knows this, but some consumers don't. You have to pay money to accept credit cards. So if you're a store merchant and someone's going to give you one dollar to buy something, you're going to get a dollar. If they're going to swipe the credit card for a dollar, you know, the amount I pay for that, or if you use something like Stripe, is 2.9% plus 30 cents. So you're losing, you know, in that example for a dollar, 33 cents. That's a third of the purchase value. Obviously, that 30 cents gets smaller and smaller with larger and larger purchases. But on average, 2.9, so let's round it up, 3%. So that money goes to cover a lot of things, one of which is, you know, to pay the merchant processing fees and all this. There's a lot of stops along the way, but at the end of the day, a bulk of that goes to the banks and the card issuers, and they use that revenue to incentivize you to use those cards in the form of rewards. Some cards do cashback, some cards do points, some cards do miles, lots of options. Some cards give you a lot of benefits, but maybe not as many rewards and they make up for it there. Some cards have annual fees that try to cover the benefits, you know, a million different options. But the way the revenue is generated for those points and miles is from the processing fees on cards. Separately, and I'm not gonna try to cover this entire concept. So I'm going to tell you a YouTube video that you can hopefully link to in the show notes. It's all about the business of frequent flyer programs, which is going to blow the minds of anyone who watches it. Because if you look at this, I think for all three of the major US carriers, United, American, and Delta, if you look at the market cap or the value of those companies, of the loyalty company, and then the... So it's usually one company owns both the airline and the individual loyalty program. So for United, there's United Airlines and then United Mileage Plus. The market cap of Mileage Plus is greater than the market cap of United Airlines. So I think the video is called like how airlines have quietly become banks. But the crazy thing is that if you look on paper, the market cap of some airlines, not all, but some airlines excluding their mileage program is negative. Like the airline is actually not worth anything without its mileage program. And that, the, and the way they generate a lot of revenue is Chase has to buy all of these United points to be able to, uh, you know, reward them to people when they transfer their ultimate rewards points to United points. And so the the business of frequent flyer miles is crazy. The business of the basically how a lot of airlines are effectively like mileage banks and that's their most valuable asset more than planes and customers and everything maybe customers you could say are part of that program but so that, th- those are the two kind of business side of things is how it works and obviously credit cards ha- make a ton of money off interest and so they're hoping that you know in in, in a maybe altruistic, non-altruistic way. They're hoping, you know, maybe you don't pay your bill, but they don't want you to go bankrupt, but they want you to pay your bill over time. And the average credit card interest rate is probably close to 20, 22% right now, I think. At least over 15.
1: So when you're on like an American airline flight and at the end of the... We always joke like they fly planes basically just to sell credit cards. But now at the end of every flight, flight attendant gets on, you can buy this great credit card by American Airlines. Okay. My question here is, and and this is true for lots of credit cards. It's like, if you just spend $1, you get 75,000 points, which gets you two free tickets. And so the next question is like, how does the business, and this is maybe hacking of getting the credit card, spending the $1, getting the 75,000 points, taking two flights, And on my end, I'm like, I just spent one and I'm kind of exaggerating a little, but not too much. I just spent $1 to to have like two great flights. Like what is happening on the backside that that seems like a rational offer that people aren't just going to take it, spend a dollar, turn off the card and move on.
0: I mean, they are, and that's factored in, but for every one of you, there's probably nine other people who either spend way more than $1 and, you know, Maybe don't eat don't you know spend way more than one dollar. Don't actually ever redeem those points or <laughs> don't even don't spend the dollar. Maybe they pay some fifty dollars annual fee, forget to spend the dollar. Don't spend the dollar within the ninety days. You know, rack up a balance, generate lots of interest charges. You know, maybe there's the rare person who now, because they did this, becomes super loyal to American Airlines and they you know, even though they pay their card off in full, they're spending tens of thousands of dollars a month on the card. I just think the unfortunate reality is that 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 dream, if you're able to do that, is great, but there are just so many people not doing that that it's not worth it you know they 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 get loyalty, they get interest, they get fees, they get people that don't redeem their points, they get people that spend way more than one dollar, and all of that
1: makes up for people like you and me. I think you just answered it but and i think you answered it in the previous question but how do banks make money on credit card points we talked about how like the companies offering the loyalty reward programs make it but how does how do the banks make money same way
0: yeah so the 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 banks are all 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 the credit cards that are issued in america are issued by some bank so your united card is issued by chase your alaska airlines card issues is issued by bank of america so the revenue every time you swipe that card is getting collected and passed to bank of america who has some partnership arrangement with, you know, Alaska Airlines about how they provision, you know, Alaska miles to customers based on, you know, some financial arrangement. I don't know the exact nuance of how all those financial co-brand relationships work. I I know a few of them, but effectively it's all of this is getting funded by interest charges and merchant processing fees.
1: So people paying off their cards on time is not good for business as a, a whole.
0: I would say it's not always not good for business. So the Amex Platinum card is a charge card. It's not a credit card. You have to pay your balance off each month. You can't carry a balance. And so Amex is making lots of money because every time you spend a dollar on that card, they're making a percentage of that. And they've factored in how much value they give you in rewards. And it's, it's not equal. They're, they're coming out ahead. The Platinum card is a perfect example because other than flights, every dollar you put on a Platinum card earns you one point. Right? There are cards out there that earn you two, do, two points on every single purchase. The Platinum card is 5x points on airlines and one on everything else. So how much does Amex... You know, how mu- what does Amex's cost for a point? I don't know the exact answer to that. But let's say it's a, a cent. Because if you want to go into the Amex portal and just book a flight, they will knock off you know one cent of that flight or hotel for every point you apply. So if they're going to earn more than $0.02 cents per dollar on transaction fees and only have to give you $0.01, cent, who ca- like, even if you don't carry a balance, they're, they're earning it on volume. And, you know, the Amex Platinum has appealed to people that spend lots of money and there's a little prestige to it. And so these are people who spend even more money. So they're making all the money from annual fees and, and the interchange on spending, not on interest charges. Amex does have cards that are credit cards that have interest charges, and they are definitely making money on those cards. But there are some cards that are still profitable for for financial institutions that don't allow you to carry balance.
1: How do you go about knowing which card is right for you, or mul- or is it the answer? There's always multiple cards that is right for you. So,
0: I think it really depends on how you spend your money. That's the most important thing, and and. F- First caveat, like we said, if you ca- no amount of interest charges or late fees or anything are worth any of this game. So if you're listening, you're like, I can't pay my credit cards off each month. Prioritize that before you prioritize rewards. If you're paying your cards off each month, I think almost everyone could benefit from maximizing those rewards. The big question you have to ask yourself is, do I wanna go through a little bit of work to be able to get value, uh, enhanced value out of points or miles or do I just want cash back? And the way to get that enhanced value is usually from transferring those points to airlines or hotel groups and booking within those loyalty programs. So like your example, if you earn a, a card on the built credit card, you can transfer to American Airlines, book in the American program. If you earn a Chase or an Amex point, you can transfer to British Airways or you can transfer to Air France and you can book in their programs. You're going to get the most value. Most of the, the way to get the most value is to do that. If you just use the card to book in the portal to get a one cent value for all your points, there's a lot of cases where it's on par or maybe slightly worse than some cashback cards. But it all really depends how you spend your money. If you spend 100% of your money at Home Depot, you're really out of luck because there's not a single card that I'm aware of that gives you any elevated bonus on home improvement stores, except maybe like a quarterly bonus. This quarter, it's home improvement stores. But if you spend a lot of money traveling, dining, buying groceries... Those are three really big categories where you can earn, you know, as much as five points per dollar, depending on the card you're using for those categories. So what I like to do is look at how you spend money and it doesn't have to be an exact perfect science. Say, where do I spend the most money? And is there a card that's going to reward me the most for doing that? So being the kind of crazy person I am and loving to optimize, I went and built a model for this. So I built this spreadsheet. I put in like the 29 most popular rewards cards and I put in all the earning rates across all the categories, and I put in how much money I spend, and I could actually go in and check off each one of the cards and say, if I had these two cards, how many points would I earn? If I had these two, if I had these three, if I added a fourth, if I added a fifth. And the result was for the average spender, which I'll define as the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Expenditure Survey for households that make over $100,000 a year. If you look at that profile, If you use the most optimal setup with two cards, you're going to earn 2.49 points per dollar. If you use one, you could just earn two. There are a couple cards that earn two points per dollar. So like the floor is two points. If you have one card that earns two. And so you can add a second card, you get to 2.49. If you go all the way down to 10 cards, I was at like 2.65. So like you get a 25% bump and then every bump after that is very, very, very small for the average profile if you spend a ridiculous money on flights, you might get a huge bump adding a card that gives you 5 points per dollar on flights, but if you know, if you don't, then it doesn't matter. So it really depends on how you spend. So the right card is based on how you spend. And you know, I I'd say depending on your profile, it's probably like 2 to 3 cards is probably the the sweet spot for for maximizing with the least amount of effort. And then if you want to go down the rabbit hole, I think I have like 12 or 13, but it's more I'd say at this point, the, the extra seven or eight cards, there's more for sport than for optimization or, or, or like ROI, I guess, but those two to three are what matters. And you know, you can, you can go research it. You can go look around that spreadsheet I made. I put on the internet, you can get it for a dollar at all the slash card value. You know, if you want to play with it, you can go check it out. There's a video explaining how it works, but in general, it's how do you spend money? What card's going to reward you for that? And then do you want to put in a little bit of effort to get more value or do you want to just rely on cashback?
1: And then just to take it one step further, we're kind of talking about the consumer. Does that change at all that it's an entrepreneurship podcast? Like if you're a small or medium-sized business and really probably more small businesses, if you're already medium or large-sized business, there's plenty being thrown at you. But for folks like getting that are getting started, is there, are there cards or thought processes you go through when you're recommending like how businesses should think about this stuff? So here's the interesting thing about businesses. At the end of the
0: day, when you're a small business, most credit cards you get from Chase or Amex, they're all kind of linked back to your personal line of credit, your personal credit score. So some of them are called business cards. Some of them are called personal cards. The bank is not checking if you get a business card and you happen to put a personal haircut on it. The bank is not checking if you have a personal card and you buy a laptop for work on it. So I think the decision of how to use business versus personal cards probably comes down to how much do you care about dealing with the accounting mess of intermingling all of those expenses versus the benefit of kind of perfectly optimizing your points you know I don't have a business card that earns me four points per dollar on dining, but I do have a personal card. If I did a ridiculous amount of business dining, I'd probably go find another card. but because I probably have a business meal three or four times a quarter or a year even, I just put them on a personal card and I flag that expense as like a business expense and I know to reimburse myself. But you can open up business cards as a small business owner. You can open up business cards without even a you know an EIN for your business. You just could do it on your personal social only as long as you have any kind of business expense and that or sorry business income which might mean you drive for uber you you know you have a side hustle selling stuff on eBay like obviously if you have a real business that counts but you yeah, know not that those aren't real businesses but I mean if you have a legal entity obviously you have a business but also if you just do things consulting work you have a business in the eyes of business card card issuers and the cool thing about business cards is that the sign-up or welcome bonuses on them can be much more lucrative. So it's it's not unusual to earn 100,000 points signing up for a business card, whereas in the personal world, that's like a, a huge deal. And then sometimes it's crazy. I, I opened a Capital One business card once and got 250,000 points to sign up for it, which if I had just redeemed as cash back would be $2,500. And the way I ended up using it, it was probably worth
1: I don't know, actually, if I think about it, probably close to like $12,000, $15,000. And one is one point equal to one penny. That's a dumb question.
0: So it really depends on the program. I would say in general, that is the floor. If you're using your points in any way to get less than one cent per point, then you're really, really unoptimized. If you're using it for any way to get more than two or more cents, then you're optimized. In that window is kind of the, the, the window of range. Chase is one of the few programs where it's pretty easy to get more than one cent because you can go into their travel portal. And if you have a Chase Sapphire Preferred or a Chase Sapphire Reserve or an Inc. Business Preferred, you get 1 to 1.25 to 1.5 cents per point. Just go in the portal, book any hotel, book any flight. Super easy. All the other programs, it's like one cent per point when you book in the portal. And the only way to really get that outsized value is like, I'm going to transfer it to you know Air Canada and buy my flight with Air Canada miles. And you can get huge value. Just to be clear, you know, we took a flight to, we took our whole family to Europe in business class, and we transferred our points, and it was hundred and five thousand points a person. Which, if those were Amex points, and I used them in the portal, I would have gotten one thousand and five dollars. But instead, I got a six thousand dollar round trip business class flight. You know, a week before Christmas. You know, nonstop from the West Coast to France and back from London. So. I was getting six times the value. So about six cents per point doing it that way. So you can get value, but it's a little bit of work. You know, if the dates weren't available that day, I might've had to go the day before to get the best deal. Whereas if you're okay, getting
1: one cent, you can get whatever flight you want. Okay. I'm a total moron. What you're saying is collect the points on Amex, go to Air France or whatever. And they will say, here's these flights. Then you connect it to Amex and transfer those points and convert them into Air France points. And now you've just basically six your spending limit because maybe Air France is offering some different special than Amex is offering.
0: It's not that it's a different special. It's that Amex is just offering to let you buy a flight at the publicly priced flight price and give you one cent towards it. And airlines have their own algorithms. Anyone that's ever booked a flight with their American, Delta, United miles, it doesn't match up one to one. And so, for example, and it really depends on the program. So, for example, Turkish Airlines is, has a their price for a US to Europe business class flight is 40,000 points. So it, as long as and we could go way deep on this, but basically all these airlines have two buckets of availability. They bucket it into like saver awards and then everything else. And so on dates where there is this kind of like availability for points and miles at the discounted rates, they make it available to partners and everything. It can be crazy. So this was a United flight from London to SFO booked as a one-way business class flight for 40,000 points. I, if you booked that in the Capital One portal, you would have gotten $400 off. And as you and many people listening know, it's almost you know, there's no world where you're going to get a nonstop international business class flight to Europe for 400 bucks. It's, just, it's never going to happen. Maybe if you live in Boston and it's some mistake fares, you know, like you're really close to Europe, but it's definitely not happening from SFO. So that is the trick. However, you're a little bit at the whims of the you know, availability. And so you have to either be flexible on where you go or what dates you go or how far in advance or how last minute you plan to get those kind of values. And for people listening that are thinking, this sounds like too much work, there's a good middle ground which is there are a bunch of services called award booking services. And there are people like me that are super nerdy about this. And you can basically pay them and they will go find the availability. So you say, Hey, I want to take my family to Europe next fall. I have a million Amex points. Can you find me a great deal? And you pay like a $25 per passenger, non-refundable deposit. And they'll just go and pull up all these tools that, you know, costs $10 a month or $100 a year. And they'll find all the best deals and come back to you and say, here's the best deal we found. And if you book it, then you've got to pay them about 150 total. So an extra 125 a person, depending on the award booking service, it might be $200. You can just Google award booking services. Point.me is one. Award Cat is one. 10x Travel has one. And so that's the middle ground, which is, okay, let's take my example. You know, $3,000 flight. I booked it for an amount of points that I would have otherwise gotten $400 for. If I had to pay someone $150 to help me get that value, it was totally worth it. Especially if,
1: you know, if otherwise I was going to pay $3,000 for the flight. Okay. Last question on this. You can use those middlemen, but if you weren't using that, would you just go on to Air? Like, how would you know what Air France has to offer? You just go to their webs? Like, how would you find that out? So this is, this is where, we
0: could go down... I'll give you the answer. So you could go to Air France's website. The challenge is, if you look at Amex, all the transfer partners that Amex has, it's not just like Air France and you know one other one. They have a ton of transfer partners. So if you go to allthehacks.com slash T for transfer, P for partners slash TP, you can go and get totally free a spreadsheet that has, here are all the transfer partners for each air, for each program. So Amex... Has I'm I'm looking at the number right now, and as soon as Google Sheets loads, I'll tell you it's like twenty eighteen different airlines you can transfer to. So yes, you could go to the British Airways site and say, does British Airways have any flights for a good deal? Then you could go to the Air France site, then you go to the Air Canada flight site, and it could be a little overwhelming. There are sites, one of them that's totally free is called Rome Travel R O A M E dot Travel, and you could say. I'm searching for this flight, and they'll search a handful of airlines and find that availability for you, and say, "Hey, here's how you can go find it," so you don't have to go to each airline's website. But if you if you're if you want to like get down into the weeds, you can say, "Let's log in Air France. Does Air France have any point trips with miles?" Let's log into British Airways. Do they have any? And you can go through that path. But Rome Travels One Point Me is one. AwardLogic.com is one. They all have some version of a free search or uh, you know a free tier. And then one of the most interesting ones is a site called seats.arrow. And only if you love nerdy stuff should you go to this website because it's definitely like made for people that love spreadsheets. But what the guy that runs this site does is he goes and searches all these sites every day for every route. So it's a very fast search because he's already done all the searches and you could filter. And it's really helpful if you just are like, I want to go somewhere. I want to go somewhere with my points in business class in Europe. Just tell me where I can get to from SFO or Dallas or New York. New York, anywhere in Asia in business class, tell me what I can do. So it's a little bit more for people who are flexible, and you'll get back options that could be a $10,000 first class flight on Singapore, and it's only, you know, 150,000 points.
1: I freaking love you. That's just, this is so fascinating. I'm such an idiot when it comes to stuff. I flew to Thailand once and we got to the airport early on the way there, we flew Emirates. And we were flying a uh, coach to get there and we got there early and this lady was standing out near you know, where you check in. And she's like, hey, for an extra thousand dollars a seat upgrade, you can fly first class Emirates. And then they show you a picture of what first class looks like. And we're like, okay, we'll do it. And I thought I had hacked the system. I thought this was all predicated on just showing up early to the airport. So the entire time we're in Thailand, I'm like, we're getting to the airport six hours early for this flight. We're going to be first in line. We're going to fly back first class. They just laughed at me on the way back. Okay, I think you just answered. By the th-
0: way, that was a great use of $1,000. Like that Emirates first class ticket was probably a $20,000 ticket. So, but like I would have done that and and been totally
1: fine not using my points. So I, I had a great time in Thailand. So I'm going to start by saying this. I love the trip. I have many memories. The best part of that trip was flying to Thailand. It was incredible. I think you just answered this question though. You had a concept of like point devaluation and point inflation. Is that what you mean by just kind of using credit card points and and like inflating them to be more or they get devalued if no, you use them? No,
0: I, I think the thing that I need to listen to my own advice on here, and it's just hard because we have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, is that over time, all of these airlines, just like there's inflation in the economy, make their points less valuable. So a couple of weeks ago, United said, "Hey, all those flights that used to be sixty thousand points, some of them are eighty thousand points now. And people who had been loyal to united and and maybe spent all their money on a United credit card are now sitting here like, crap, all my points are now, you know seventy five percent the value as they were yesterday, at least if I want to use them to fly internationally or something. You know, maybe they didn't change every single flight w- went up twenty five, thirty percent. But people who have Amex points or people who have chase points, were sitting here going, cool, I'll just transfer them to Air Canada. Cause like Air Canada is in Star Alliance. I could book that United flight on Air Canada. In fact, my wife and I are going tomorrow to French Polynesia. United wanted 80,000 points for each way in business. Air Canada wanted 55,000 points each way in business for the same United flight. And even better if you keep your eye on what's going on on a lot of these airlines, I I usually bring these up in my newsletter and on the podcast. Right now, Chase has a promo where if you transfer Chase points to Air Canada, you get 20% more. So we ended up transferring 46,000 points. And now we've got the business class ticket. United, it would have been 80. So like... And it's the same flight. It's the same United flight. I'm going to check in on the United app. I'm going to pick my seats. I'm going to get the... Everything's the same. It's just there's this discrepancy between how much each airline charges for certain routes. And there might be a route where if you want to go from San Francisco to Denver, maybe United is 10,000 points and Air Canada is 25. Like, it's not that any one airline is always the best deal. So when United raises their prices, that's kind of points inflation. It's nice to be able to have these flexible points at Chase, Amex, City, Capital One built where you can say, Great, I'm going to transfer them somewhere else because they're not all changing all at the same time. And you also have the flexibility that, you know, if you have points that you can transfer to British Airways, that unlocks the One World Alliance, which is, you know, I can't remember exactly how many airlines. Let's say, you know, 15, 20 airlines. You have Air France, which can unlock all of SkyTeam. You have Air Canada, which unlocks all of Star Alliance. Like you have a lot of options. So, I'm not a fan of using the American Delta United JetBlue Southwest cards unless you want to use them because they give you free checked bags and the, you know, $95 annual fee saves you way more than that because you check a lot of bags. Great. By all means, have the United card. Just don't put money on it. You know, like <laughs> if you have a Chase Sapphire Reserve, you earn 3 points per dollar on travel, you can transfer them to United. The United card you, that I had earns 2 points per dollar on united flights so you get more united points on the chase reserve than you do on the united card. So, I like transferable points. They help hedge against points inflation because you got a lot of options and if you want to go deep deeper down this rabbit hole, I probably have 20 episodes where we've talked about points and miles. So, you know, head over. I don't I don't want to dom- for for those of those of you listening who are like I'm
1: done with this Maybe we maybe we could move on go 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 to go to all the hacks and listen to those, and then the, so the last question is doesn't have to do with the airline, but I'm assuming you book the flight the same process you go through to then book the hotel and book the travel. There's not a different way that you think about actually getting the hotel
0: there is so this is and this some of these tips are not going to be related to points, so it can help you even if you're like, I'm done with this point, so why is this you know why are we still talking about it so on the hotel, there's one thing that's unfortunate, which is that. Most hotel programs have, you know, the value of their points, the, the points guys website has this whole valuation thing where they say, here's, we think a United points worth one point four cent. Hotel points are consistently worth a lot less, which is fine, right? A lot of, I think on a Hilton Amex, if you stay at a Hilton, you get like 15 points per dollar, some a crazy number of points. So it makes sense if you're getting 15 points, whereas most cards are getting three or four points, makes sense that those points are worth less, which you know, it's totally fine. However, when you go to transfer your Amex points or your Chase points to an airline, or you're getting usually one-to-one, and when you transfer to the hotel group, you're also getting one-to-one. And so if you're gonna go and get a United point, which in general is probably worth more than one cent, but the same number of points would be necessary to transfer to Marriott, where the points are worth, I don't know, 0.6, 0.7 cents, you're just getting a worse deal. So in general, I'm all for earning points at hotels. You should definitely do that. And if you have a huge balance of Hilton, Marriott, IHG, whatever points, use them for hotels. Great options. I'm not a fan of transferring those points from your credit cards to hotels because it's often not the best deal. And so you know, I'll typically, if you have points in the hotel groups, great. Otherwise, I've got a couple hacks with one massive exception, which is Hyatt. Hyatt's points are worth a significantly... They're just worth more their credit cards earn less points per dollar. So it's kind of like currencies, right? Like They're worth more, but you get less of them. But the transfer is still one to one. So a Hyatt point might be worth more than a cent and you can get one for every Chase point. But a Marriott point is worth less than a cent and you get one. So Hyatt, great deals. Like, you know, you want to stay at a Park Hyatt. And if you want to go to Japan, the Park Hyatt Kyoto is an unbelievable hotel. You can get a $2,000 room for 40,000, 45,000 points. Marriott, it's cost you 150,000 points. So it's like, it's just night and day different. So if you have chase points or built points, you can go to Hyatt. If you don't, I'd say, forget about trying to transfer points to hotel programs. Someone listening has probably done it and gotten a good deal. That's not to say they aren't there, but on the whole, it's a lot harder to get value. What you can do, no matter who you are, when you book your next hotel, when you're not using points, book it directly with the airline's website. Super easy. Go to Marriott.com. Go to, go to whatever and book it with the hotel website. Don't book it on TripAdvisor, Kayak or anything. And once you've booked it, email the hotel. And if you can't find the email address, I've actually had good luck asking Google Bard for the email address. You can call the front desk and ask for an email address. You can search on the website and say, hey, I'm coming to stay at your hotel. Here's my date to my confirmation. Really excited to stay with you guys. If you're celebrating something, anniversary, birthday, go ahead and tell them. If not, no big deal. And just tell them, excited to come send it off. If you if it's pretty far in advance, maybe 3-4 days before you come, send it. Follow up. Hey, just want to remind... Still coming. Really excited. I have had over a thousand listeners reach out to say, we got upgraded. We got free breakfast. We got... Just today, I did this for our trip. And I got an email from Hilton. And they. I said, hey, it would be really awesome if you guys could... I even asked. I said, could you guys waive the shuttle transfer fee? And they are like, we're excited to let you know. We, we're going to waive the shuttle transfer. Like... Because hotels are in this hospitality industry, they just want to build a relationship. When you book on Kayak, they don't even know who you are until you're about to check in. They they So if you book directly with them, they know they have a chance to build a relationship with you and they will do more. So give them a chance to know that you're there. Flag to them that you're a person they can build a relationship with. You don't even need to ask. And I I won't say every time, but I would say it seems like about a 50% success rate of better view upgrade champagne amenity someone i know on our on the podcast got their initials stitched onto a pillow which i don't know, i take i take the <laughs> champagne
1: over over
0: <laughs> over my initials on the pillow but you know it's nice gesture
1: everybody listening to this just press pause and they're now emailing whoever they're going to see for the rest of summer hotels are getting blown up left and right as we as we say this all right i just want to pivot for a second Business podcast, we're talking about hacking, doesn't have to do with credit card points. We can talk about anything. You run businesses, you've run businesses. Are there any hacks? I don't know what comes to mind top three things, maybe one thing like some business hacks that entrepreneurs can take with them to their business?
0: Yeah, I have a lot. If you so, I recently hired an uh, online EA, like a virtual assistant. Total game changer. Like I, I, and and if you're like me and you're struggling to do that, and you're like, ah, I just don't know how it would work. What I did that finally pushed me over the edge was for a month I wrote down every single task that I could have outsourced. And and the other thing is, there are a lot of small business owners listening. I think when you're a small business owner, it's a little bit easier to realize that like life and work blend together a little bit, right? So there's only so many hours in the day. So if you can hire someone that can help you take on a task that you would otherwise have to spend time doing and couldn't work during, that seems like a reasonable use of, of a business expense. So on my list of tasks before I hired this virtual assistant was everything from, I can you source me- meals that we can cook this week and then order the groceries on Amazon Fresh to be delivered to our house? If that saves me three, four hours a week, that's three, four hours a week. I could do something else. Whether that's hanging out with my kids or, or work, like it, it frees up time. And so I started making this list and I realized there were just so many things. And I, I used Loom. And every time I had a thing that I wanted someone else to do, and this was kind of once I made the decision to hire someone, I would just record. Here's how I do it. And if you haven't used Loom, it's basically a screen recording software. And I was like, hey, this is how I create an invoice and send it out, put it in a list. And then I have a list of tasks and a list of videos with those tasks of exactly how to do it. And you can really get someone off the ground running. So I'm a huge fan of this. There are a lot of companies out there that you know offer services to help you find these. I used one called Oceans, oceansxyz.com. My has been absolutely kind of game changer, both on the personal front, help me organize this trip and on the business side, listen to a podcast, help me think about how to prep for this interview, do a, some research on this topic follow up with these people, clean out my inbox, draft replies to people. It's just once you make a list for a month, you realize there's a thousand things that someone else could be doing to help free you up for those really important things. And I think my biggest hack for business owners is that I don't feel like we spend as enough time... We don't. I don't think we spend enough time focused on those big picture things. How am I going to you know, 10X this business? How am I, what major things do I need to be focusing my time and energy on? Because we get so caught up in, I gotta get through all these emails today. I gotta go do all these meetings. So one big one is that. The other one is, I got this email from someone once and I said, hey, do you wanna, I would love to pick your brain about something. And they had this response. I think it was even an auto reply. It said, hey, could we do this asynchronously? And they kind of like just pushed back a little bit and said, you know, I just have so much stuff going on. I really want to prioritize my work, my time, my family. I found that I can get meetings done in half the time if we do the asynchronously. Here's this software called Loom. If you want to run something by me, record a video. I will record a response. Like we will have a conversation. I'm not trying to ignore you. I just think it's more efficient. And I've started doing this a little bit and wow, is it so much more efficient. Like you want to ask someone to review your startup presentation well, I'd rather review it by watching a video of you presenting it that I can watch it 2x because, I don't know, if you're listening to podcasts, you probably have gotten accustomed to listening at something faster than 1x. So I can watch the thing faster. I can type up my reply. I can do it in bed while my you know wife is asleep, which I couldn't do a call during. And I don't know. It's just that's become really a game changer. And then also just learning that you don't have to say yes to everything. Like every person that asks for a little bit of your time is you don't have to say yes and once you learn to say, hey, I'm really focused on other things right now, I don't have time. If you want to follow up in three months after I'm done with a few big projects, we can make something happen. 90% of the people never follow up. And and you really free up a lot of your time to
1: focus on things that are probably more important than these one-off meetings. I can be a testament that you do that because our mutual friend that introduced us, before he introduced us, he was like, This guy is ruthless with his time. Like he's not going to work with you if it's not a priority. It's not like a negative thing. It's like, and I admired it so much. I remember asking David, I was like, well, why don't you just talk to him? Tell him about, just see if it's okay. And so by the time he had come back, he's like, Chris said, he'll talk to you. The joke, like I, it was like a rite of passage. I was like, oh God, I passed some tests. I didn't know what test I passed, but I think it's so smart that you do it. The last topic I really kind of wanted to chat about today, which is what brought us together and something you said you've gone really deep on is like this emerging world is podcasting. It's still like, I think I would consider it in in its infancy. There's lots of podcasts and it's becoming more mainstream, but the data would show that we're still like really, really early. And so I thought maybe... You might be able to start by sharing why you decided to go all in on a podcast, and then maybe we could riff back and forth a little bit about what you've learned about the business of podcasting. Because again, our mutual friend that introduced us was like, I haven't met anybody that understands podcasting as much as Chris does. And that's why we met.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that's a thank you, David, for the <laughs> kind words. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to make you feel like uh, <laughs> like you had to pass a test to hang out.
1: No, it was great. <laughs> now,
0: uh, but when i think about podcasting so for context and i'm going to try to make this relevant to people maybe podcasting's not it for you so you know if if you're not interested in a podcast i still think there's a tremendous amount of value for anyone small business owner just employee understanding creating some type of brand a- and content that you know can help bolster who you are on the internet with other people so for me i tried lots of things I've been, you know, I mentioned high school. I've been dabbling in the like life optimization, points and miles, travel for free, get all the deals my whole life. And I've never really figured out the right way to build that brand outside of being known for it. So, funny enough, the way you found me, and if you Google online, I don't think there's anything that describes me as like a guy who knows a lot about podcasting. There's a guy who has podcasts, yes. Guy who knows a lot about it, no. And, so that was the same was true for me when it comes to optimizing and points and miles and all of that kind of stuff. And so I remember one time I was like, "Well, I joined Twitter pretty early. Like maybe I'll tweet about it." It just never stuck. Like for me, that just that platform didn't work. Then I remember I started a blog. I started a few blogs in my time. It's kind of embarrassing, but I went on Medium and I wrote two or three posts. Never stuck. So I just kept trying things and they never stuck. And I I, I wasn't. You know, I think I tried newsletter, I tried blog, I tried social media posts. I never really loved video as like the YouTube style vlogging video. So I, I don't think I ever tried that. But when I started a company, I went on some podcasts as a guest and I was like, oh, I really like that format. And I realized that the thing that gets me a lot of excitement in my life and when people kind of light up was talking about all these ways to optimize your life, getting tra- traveling for free, deals, hacking everything and it often happened at the dinner table. So it kind of felt like we were out at some group dinner and I was telling these stories and I was like that's the moment where people are kind of leaning in. For some people that might be they're leaning in when they read an amazing email, which is a little harder because you can't see that reaction, but if you get e- if you get responses to a lot of your emails and people are like wow, I loved reading what you wrote. You know, maybe maybe that's your format. If people love and heart and like all of your social media content, well great, maybe that's it. They don't for me. But <laughs> When I was in person, people were like, I could tell a story and help people figure things out. And I went on podcasts as a guest when I was running a startup, not to talk about any of those things. And I was like, wow, I love this format. Like, I just felt so natural. And it made sense because when I looked back, I was like, oh, my natural state is, you know, telling friends stories at dinner and and helping people one-on-one. So I was like, let's try the podcast thing. And I didn't commit to doing it for the rest of my life. I didn't quit my job. I said, I'm going to make eight episodes. That was it. And I made eight episodes, and I said, "I'm gonna send it to everyone." I called in all the favors of all the people I'd known, and can you share this thing? Can you post it on social media? Can you forward it? Can you listen? And I knew by the time we got to episode five, I was like, "Oh, this is working. People really like it. People are listening. But I only committed to do it for a little bit of time. And then I realized I just loved it. And I just you know, now we're over a hundred episodes in, and I'm still doing it. So the medium worked. And it, it for the first year, it wasn't a business. It was just a thing. And I think any type of content creation has to be something you'd be willing to do for nothing because, I don't know, there's like a 90% chance you will have to do it for nothing. And then there's a small chance that you will be able to make it a business. But even if you make it a business, it's gonna feel like 10X the work if you don't love doing it. So only start creating content if you actually enjoy it and, and you can keep it up because at some point you will be ready to not do it and you, you know, if you get to that point, it's really tough, especially if you've, you know, brought on brands and partners, and now you're, oh, I hate doing this. So I tell people to find a medium, test it out, see if you like it, and then later figure out if you can make it a business. Later, figure out if you want to go all in on it. And and it doesn't have to be your whole job. You know, you could write a newsletter sharing your thoughts. I think there's a guy named Nick Gray who I don't know if you've had on the show or not, but he's a super fascinating character, and. He wrote a book about how to to have the best cocktail party. It's called The Two-Hour Cocktail Party. But he has a friend's newsletter. And he just has a newsletter that he sends out to probably like 10,000 plus people. That's just like cool stuff he finds on the internet, interesting posts, stuff he's up to in his life. And he he advocates, I had an interview with him and he talked about this. He advocates for everyone to have a friend's newsletter. We can have a business newsletter. If you're in an industry, maybe just start writing your takes on what's going on in that industry. You could do it on audio. You could do it on video. You could do it on text. You could do it on social media. Y- you pick your medium. I just felt like podcasting was the one that was most natural for me. And then, like I mentioned with the car dealership, it's like once I picked a medium, I was like, I want to understand everything there is to know about this medium. I want to know how do people make money? How do pe- podcasts grow? Where do people find out about it? What are the analytics? How does it work? And I just went down every rabbit hole about how podcasting works and was amazed that very few people treat their podcasts With the level of scrutiny and analytics and interest and questioning as they do their business. So I kind of carved out this, I'll call it like an offline niche, like a a niche among friends, where it's like I've become this person that knows a lot about it because I just went so deep on it and treated it like a business, not a business monetization wise from day one, but a business like if I'm going to do this, I want to understand how it works and all the levers and everything. And so, you know, it's been two years and we've, been pretty successful doing it. My wife is quitting her job to join full time and so the two of us are now running I guess a media company if, if that's what you want to call it, but it feels weird. We're just running all the hacks and I don't know. It's it's been a lot of fun and very rewarding.
1: On the on the to bring it home on the you know, theme of hacks, is there one or two hacks that might come to mind of how you grew your podcast maybe faster than you would have? without knowing all this stuff.
0: Yeah, I think fortunately this is relevant to almost any medium and it's so obvious, but it doesn't seem obvious. It is very hard to convince people to consume content in different ways. And I had always assumed that people you know, loved all the hacks and so they subscribed to the newsletter and they listened to the podcast. Turns out the people who subscribe to the newsletter, some of them are the same, but many of them are different. And what that led me to believe was the way to get in front of people is on the mediums that they're consuming. So to try to grow a podcast by growing on social media is going to be really hard because the people that consume content on Twitter might not be podcast people. So the number one way to grow any type of content is to grow it on the platform that it is being produced on. So if you want to grow a podcast, go find ways to get the word out on other podcasts, whether that's. If you have money and you wanna, you know, paid growth, you can sponsor other podcasts, you can do promotional swaps, you can go be a guest on those podcasts. Like finding a way to get in the ears of people is gonna be 10 times more valuable than getting on their Twitter stream because the conversion from platforms is so hard. I have a friend with, I don't know, probably more than 15 million followers on a pie on social media. And that converted to less than a hundred thousand podcast listeners. And so, you know, just because you're on one platform doesn't mean you can't get another. Certainly helps. Getting to a hundred thousand podcast listeners is incredibly hard. But I'm guessing most of the people listening also don't have 15 million, you know, followers on social media. So I would say the more you can focus on the platform, if you wanna get on a newsletter, if you wanna launch a newsletter, go find newsletter writers where you think you could add a lot of value and ask them if you could write a guest post in their newsletter. You know, if you want to be a blogger, ask if you can guest blog on other blogs. Find a a way to to get in front of the right people. And you know, you might have a lot more
1: luck growing. Chris, you're the man. Thank you for joining me today. This was great. This is fun. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcasts. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.